Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. Feminist author Mona el wrote last Mother's Day that when she started saying in public lectures that she was child-free by choice, women would, quote, track her down in a corridor, backstage or in the bathroom to whisper, thank you, I have never heard another woman say that out loud before. We'll discuss why some people choose not to have kids and even why some who do may regret aspects of parenthood and why, in 2021, those conversations are still so fraught. Join me, Seema Yasmin, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Seema Yasmin, a public health doctor and journalist in Famina Kim. A growing number of adults are choosing to not become parents, a lifestyle described as child-free. Yet many people, and especially women, say that they feel judged by their families, friends, and even their own doctors when they vocalize not wanting to have kids. By the same token, some parents say that to express regret, even for some aspects of parenthood, say for the age at which they had kids, for their partner choice, or for becoming a parent at all, is entirely taboo. As birth rates decline in the US and globally, we'll be talking about the societal taboos around parenthood, why these taboos are so pervasive, and how the conversation may be shifting. Joining us today are Mona el a feminist author, commentator, and self-anointed disruptor of patriarchy. Mona's first book, Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution, targeted patriarchy in the Middle East and North Africa. And her second book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, was aimed at readers worldwide. Mona el is also founder and editor-in-chief of the newsletter Feminist Giant. And also joining us is Jill Filipovich. Jill is a journalist, a lawyer, and author of The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. So welcome to Forum and welcome to our guests. Mona, I'd like to start with you. And I think for some people, especially women, and I'm thinking about my mother here too, 
There was no choice about having children, no bodily autonomy. It was an expectation, even something that was forced. So did you feel, Mona, that you had a choice? Well, you know, Seema, first of all, thank you so much for having this conversation with us, because I think it's absolutely vital to take this taboo out into the world. And, you know, when it comes to my family, I'm let me tell you about my grandmothers, first of all, because my paternal grandmother had eight children. My maternal grandmother had 11 children, but she was pregnant 14 times. And the uh, yeah, 14 times. And the eldest of my maternal grandmother's children is my mother who has three children and I'm the eldest of her children and I am happily child free. So it wasn't so much that, you know, someone was on my back saying, have children, have children. But I mean, this is this is the lineage from which I come, you know. So but interestingly enough, my own parents never pressured me to have children. Bless them for that. Never, ever. But I did get pressure from my extended family to get married and and along with that, of course, to have children. So um, I would I would love that kind of choice to be available to everyone. But I speak about my own family and I want to hear more stories from people who are from my own cultural and faith background, because so much of that stuff, you know, I'm of Muslim descent. And, you know, we have so many sayings of Prophet Muhammad that, you know, that that elevate mothers. We're told that paradise is under the feet of mothers. We're told by Prophet Muhammad in the hadiths that you should, who, uh, you know, someone asked him, who should I listen to and obey first? And he said, your mother, your mother, your mother, and then your father. So look at all the ways that motherhood is like, you know, deified almost. So to reject that, even if there isn't direct pressure, is a massive, massive amount of stigma and taboo to fight. Absolutely, Mona. And you articulate that so well that even when it wasn't your mum and dad saying have kids, there is pressure all around you. And you write so powerfully in your essay, Unmothering, you say, without actually saying I'm never going to have children, without thinking about children at all, I had already vowed to myself to not have children. And I believe that was at quite a young age, Mona. So can you describe to us how you came to that decision. Absolutely. You know, like I said, so as I've made clear, I come from a massive extended family. I've lost count of how many cousins I have. (laughs) So, you know, so when we would get together for Eid, you know, twice a year in, in the Islamic calendar, they would be kids everywhere. So that that was, you know, part of my background and my upbringing. But when I was 15 years old, my family. So when I was seven, we moved to London. And when I was 15, we moved to Saudi Arabia. And it was really the move to Saudi Arabia that clenched it for me, because I come from a home where both my parents are medical doctors. You know, they raised my siblings and I with the expectation of knowledge, education above everything. Mm -hmm. And then when we moved to Saudi Arabia, it just my world turned upside down. And I, I say often that I was traumatized into feminism in Saudi Arabia (laughs) because of the extreme. Now, patriarchy is universal. It is not exclusive to Saudi Arabia, of course. But patriarchy in Saudi Arabia is especially sharp. Its bite is especially sharp. And I recognized at a very young age, like like I say in the essay, I didn't verbalize it. Mm -hmm. But I made a vow to myself soon after we moved to Saudi Arabia that I would never allow myself to be in a situation I couldn't walk away from mm. because I felt that I had been incarcerated. I felt like I'd been sentenced to a, to prison in Saudi Arabia mm. as a teenage girl. And part of that vow to myself 
was not to get married and not to have children. Mm. Now, I, I made the massive mistake of getting married, but I kept the vow to myself to never have children because, I, as I say in the essay, you can walk away from the family that, that you come from. I love my family very much, but, you know, I left them. Um, you can walk away from a marriage. I divorced my husband, but you can't walk away from children. Mm-hmm. Mona, you really articulate this really powerfully, but I'm curious... Did you have any role models, any other women in your life who chose a child-free life? You know, Seema, I didn't. I mean, I I have an aunt on both sides of my family. So I have a paternal aunt and a maternal aunt who really wanted children and do not have children. So they're they're child-free, not by choice. And I I remember the pain and the sadness and the grief (sighs) that that I would see in them because they really wanted children. So that that was the only kind of example of women who didn't have children in my immediate life. So I think that vow that I made to myself was basically, as I say again and again, it was a vow to be free. It was a vow for liberation. It was just me telling younger me, you know what, hang in there, because when we grow up, (laughs) I promise you, you will be able to walk away from anything you want. So Mona, when did you vocalize this? Um, So I began, you know, I think it was um, probably in my mid 30s. I began to say it out loud, you know, to people, to friends. I can't remember, to be honest, when I said it to friends. But when I said it publicly, I would say it in my public lectures because I'm a public speaker. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I would say almost in passing because it was, you know, it was, I, I thought everyone knew that I didn't want children. But clearly it wasn't this, you know, easy thing because I would say it and I would either hear audible gasps hmm. or after my lectures, I would be tracked down by mostly women, hmm. um, you know, in the bathroom, in the corridors, who would find me to say publicly, you know, privately, whispering almost, thank you so much for saying that. I have never heard a woman say that out loud. And I say that now, it's not just about women, because I want mm-hmm. this conversation to be about, you know, non-binary people, gender non-conforming people, trans men, anyone who has a uterus, who is expected to provide that uterus for the sake of patriarchy. So now I say it whenever I can. Absolutely. So on that point, I want to bring in Jill Filipovich. Jill authored a May 11 essay titled The Things We Don't Discuss, which asked this question, why does the very concept of parental regret engender such outrage. And Jill, I was floored before the essay just with your tweet that basically was saying you would like to hear more people like Mona, more people share experiences of choosing a child-free life or perhaps even articulating, you know, this big taboo, some regret about aspects of parenthood. Jill, can you tell us about the vitriol and backlash that you faced? Sure. It was quite striking. Um, So, Last month in May, I (laughs) posted a tweet that I honestly didn't expect uh, to receive the kind of anger that it did, essentially saying that there's so much about motherhood and parenthood that has been plumbed publicly, Mm -hmm. that women have written about, and that the one aspect of parenthood generally, but motherhood specifically, that seems to remain entirely taboo is maternal or paternal regret. Um, you know, not in the sense of, oh, I hate my kids and wish they never existed, which isn't what most women mean when they talk about regret, but just opening up uh, a line of conversation 
about the ways in which, you know, women, mothers like all of us may look at, you know, a parallel unlived life in which they didn't have kids or had kids later or had fewer kids um, and think, you know, maybe it looks nicer over there. So I, I put up this tweet, you know, essentially thinking, I'm a feminist writer. I write about women's lives and particularly women's reproductive lives mm -hmm. quite a bit. This is something I haven't seen discussed. And, and not being a parent myself, you know, I'm not the I'm not the person to write this essay. And it was an immediate avalanche mm -hmm. of, of overwhelming outrage. Um, you know, essentially people saying that if if parents and mothers in particular do regret having children or regret some aspect of parenthood. You know, they're essentially monsters who should keep their mouths shut. Um, and it, it was so striking that the request for more conversation about a taboo resulted in this very strong and very angry social enforcement of that taboo. Um, and then in the background, I had many, many women sending me private messages and emails. I mean, similar to what Mona's describing, mm -hmm. you know, essentially saying, I can't say this publicly for all the reasons that you're now seeing, but I felt this, you know, I wish I could talk about this. I wish that there was a space uh, for women to share the complicated feelings around mm. parenthood. I was floored, Jill, by this bizarre and I think really disturbing conflation between someone who might say, I regret the age at which I had kids. I regret the particular family structure I've chosen. People conflating that with child abuse. Where do you think that comes from? Well, it was fascinating. I mean, there were, you know, very prominent progressive journalists, you know, comparing the idea of maternal regret to, you know, murdering your mm. children, um, wow. comparing women who would even talk about this, you know, to someone like Andrea Yates, who is a famous uh, American woman who drowned her children in the bathtub um, because she had a very serious mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do think a lot of it comes from our idea of what a mother should be mm -hmm. and there is no single thing a mother should be more than selfless. Absolutely. And so if women indicate that they aren't willing to seed their whole selves uh, for their children, that's tremendously taboo. If you're listening, have you felt pressure to become a parent? Did you choose to not have kids? Give us a call at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
You're listening to Forum. Today we're discussing why some people choose to not have kids, why some who do may regret aspects of parenthood, and why even today in 2021 these conversations are still so fraught and evoke such strong emotions. We've been joined by Mona Altahawi, the author of The Seven Necessary Sins for, for Women and Girls, and Jill Filipovich, who's a journalist, lawyer, and author. And now I'd like to bring in Caroline Sten Hartnett. She's Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of of South Carolina, and Professor Hartnett holds a PhD in demography and sociology. So thank you so much for joining us. Professor Hartnett, one of the things that I found really interesting in reading about this was that some people choosing to not have kids, it's not exactly a new phenomenon. I was reading about trends in Victorian England, even, where about 10% of women reach the end of childbearing age without kids. And apparently that stayed pretty consistent until the 60s, when even baby boomers, one in five of them, reached the end of childbearing age without kids. So I wonder if you can bring us up to speed on current trends of birth rates in the US and perhaps how this has shifted over time. Um, Yeah, sure. So um, the US um, sort of kind of to put it in a, a like a larger context. So the US had birth rates um, that were pretty high and pretty stable through the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, they were sort of at a level of about two children per woman, um, you know, with a small but, you know, real proportion of women not having um, any kids. And um, that level of childbearing was pretty high among wealthy countries. And then around the time of the recession, the birth rate in the U.S. started to fall. Um, And it's fallen pretty steadily since then. So um, it was about 2.1 children per woman in 2007. um, And now it's down to um, about 1.6 or a little bit above that in um, in 2020. Um, And if we look at the proportion of women who um, kind of end their childbearing years with no children, um, it's true that that in um, in European countries going back, you know, at least several hundred years, um, and in the US too, there has always been, um, a, you know, a decent proportion of women um, who haven't had kids at all. Um, you know, and mostly that was sort of women who didn't get married. It can feel pretty straightforward to think, okay, birth rates are declining, it's because people aren't having kids. But can you bring us up to speed on what the biggest drivers of that change are? Yeah. Um, So I think it's a combination of a lot of different factors. Um, On one hand, you have the costs associated with childbearing Mm. going up. So the cost of childcare, the cost of housing, the cost of college. Um, And then simultaneously, you have the ability of young people to bear those costs going down, right? You have student debt that makes it harder for people to bear those costs. Um, Young adults hold a lower percentage of the country's wealth compared Mm -hmm. to previous generations of young adults. Um, So both, you know, rising costs and less ability to bear those costs. And then also, you know, employers used to provide certain types of things that supported employees and sort of indirectly supported childbearing. Um, So I'm talking about things like reliable work schedules, low cost health insurance, pensions, um, and those supports have also gotten weaker over time and they haven't been compensated for, Mm -hmm. right? Those losses haven't been compensated for with a broadening of the public social safety net. Right. So it can feel like this very personal decision and the emphasis being on people, individuals to reproduce, but then you're describing these big societal factors, the cost, the support you may or may not get that can really shift birth rates. Yes. 
Um, so, you know, I don't think that we see evidence of, um, you know, kind of big increases in people saying that they don't want kids at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people still generally say that they ideally, you know, on average would like to have two or even three children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we are seeing, we have seen small increases in the percentage of, um, of people who, um, who say that they don't intend to have children or don't want to have children. Um, but, you know, but on average, most people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they list a number that is not, you know, not as low as you might expect. Sure. And so we'll a come, lot of people say three or above. Three or above. We'll come back to this shift in birth rates, how it might change even in the future. But right now, I want to bring in our first caller, Shireen from San Francisco. Shireen, thank you so much for calling in today. Hi, thank you. This is, this is such a fraught topic. Um, uh, first, let me say I'm a mother of a wonderful son whom I adore, but I advise him and all of my younger friends to think very thoroughly about the choice to have children because it is an enormous undertaking financially, psychologically, emotionally, and most of all, physically, you are tethered to this person who is, lives outside of your body, but to whom you feel enormous emotions of um, love and tenderness and guilt and aspiration. And this, you're, you're basically bound to this person for your whole life. And so think about your own aspirations, what it is that you, how you want to live, not to mention the state of the world and the difficulties that we all suffer, the pain and suffering we go through in order to navigate and make a place for ourselves in this world. It's not easy for anybody. Think carefully, please. And let's have more discussions like this, because the taboo around this is keeping us back, just like the taboo around talking about death and preparation for that inevitability. Right. That, That silence and that stigmatization doesn't really help us understand one another or advance the conversation. Shireen, thank you so much for calling in. I want to take another call now from Vanessa, who I believe is in Campbell. Vanessa, thanks for calling into Forum. Yes, good morning. I just wanted to say bravo to these girls. I think that's amazing. You know, I raised two kids. I love them. But it was so much work. I had to work full time. And I don't regret my decision. But it was exhausting. And if you're not ready for that work, it's a job that is enormous. And so don't make that make that choice that you you don't want to get involved in that because it is a lifetime commitment. It is very expensive and overwhelming. Thank so you so you, thank you so much, Vanessa, for calling in. That's real. It is a lot of work. And Nora writes, I have no children. I'll be 60. How many times over my life have people asked me why? I always found this to be incredibly rude and would just give a look with raised eyebrows and not answer. It's none of your business. Mona, there is this pressure to explain why you may not want children. I think rarely are people asked to justify why they do want children, right? Yes. Hello. Yes. Thank you. Um, I, I, You know, this is Pride Month and I identify as queer and I send out my love and solidarity to everyone on, who is LGBTQ around the world and who's listening. And this is kind of like the, the frustration that someone 
who is heterosexual. You know, when someone straight asks someone who's queer, you know, how did you know you're queer? Mm -hmm. And it's more, more in more recent times, do we start saying things, you know, do we start asking them, well, how did you know you were straight, you know? Mm -hmm. Because the, the assumption is always in one direction, you know, that the power goes in one direction and never in the other. And people never stop to ask that. I could ask them, you know, how did you know you wanted children? Now, there are some people, granted, who really, really do know they want children. But I think the majority of people, honestly, if they were really honest, just kind of drift into it. They don't sit there and say, I really want children. They just do it because they think this, they're supposed to have children. And then I think the, the other thing that, that people use, too, is that they think that they can ask this question because the, 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 the underlying, like the, the unspoken is that, you're selfish right. for not wanting to have children. And so, you know what? Okay, I am selfish. I am selfish. I am putting my myself proudly first. Mm -hmm. I am choosing me. I insist on my freedom and my personal liberation. And if that makes me selfish, oh, I'm selfish. Mona, that's what you've gone from one taboo to another, Mona. It's very stigmatizing for a woman to say that she's selfish, right? And I believe you've heard a lot from people who say, you know what, you're going to regret it, Mona, when you're older and when it's too late. What have you said to them in response? Well, you know, I'm 53. I'll be 54 this summer. I'm perimenopausal and going up and down that roller coaster and everything <laughs> it means. But I tell you, one of the best things that it means, it means that, that my menstruation is ending and no more, mm -hmm. no more scares about pregnancy. And I wrote in my essay, you know, I, I was very clear. I said, look, people will tell you you're going to regret it. You're going to regret it. And I'm here to tell you I'm on the other side and I do not regret it. And we really need to say that. Mm -hmm. We need to just outright say, just like I said, I am selfish. If, if choosing me makes me selfish, I'm selfish. We also need to say, I do not regret it very clearly. Powerful. We have so many calls coming in. Let's go to Marsha, who's calling from Redwood City. Hello, Marsha. Hello. Um, I just thought I'd share a couple aspects of my experience. Um, I'm originally from the Midwest, and um, it's a clear social expectation um, and norm in the Midwest to have children by your early 20s. And if you don't, um, you are looked at, you are, you're put into a subgroup um, with negative connotations. Hmm. Um, and so that was clear. Um, and I, um, I am married, and I was married for um, over 15 years before we had a child, which was actually a surprise. <laughs> um, so she's been medically, it's been medically, uh, died. anyway, it was a miracle. Um, so anyway, um, but in those 15 years, um, we as a family unit were um, often not actually acknowledged at, to be a family wow. because we didn't have children. Um, by peers, by um, companies that we worked for, by employers, I should say, mm -hmm. and um, and it was it was repeatedly um, demonstrated how um, family units with children were treated differently. Mm -hmm. So. Thank, interesting. It is interesting. Marsha, thank you so much for calling in with your experience about 
being treated like you weren't a family because you didn't have children. You're listening to Forum. We're talking about why some people choose to not have kids, why some who do may regret aspects of parenthood, and why even now these conversations evoke such strong emotions. Peggy is on the line from Sacramento, and she and her partner took a very interesting, I think pretty unique approach to deciding whether they should or shouldn't have children. Peggy, tell us what you and your husband did. Well, my husband and I married when we were 35, and we didn't know if we wanted kids. So over the period of two, we loved to travel and we loved our jobs. So over a period of two years, we interviewed 100 couples uh, at parties in different locations, uh, and the husbands and wives separately. We asked three questions. Why did you have kids? They said, it's the purpose of marriage. We were pregnant, we didn't have a choice, somebody to take care of you when you're older, somebody to carry on the family name. Only two couples had kids because they wanted kids, loved kids, couldn't imagine life without them. Second question was, what do you like best about it? 98 98 couples said family vacations. The two couples said every minute. We love every day. We love everything. We, you know, we love them all the time. And then, would you do it again? And 98 couples said, we love our kids. We can't imagine life without them. It, you know, it would, it would be a hole in our hearts, but we probably would not do it again if we knew what we knew now. Only two couples said they would die without their kids. So we thought, well, we're not missing much. Um, our friends, until we got to be about 55, were generally single. And after 55, now we have seven couples that are friends and they've never had kids. And we're now uh, 78. (laughs) So I just thought that was, you know, worth sharing. Thank you. That's a fascinating approach, Peggy. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Jill, in your essay, you talk about the ways in which people like Peggy approach these decisions about becoming parents or not. Have you heard of anyone taking as methodical an approach as Peggy and her husband? I have not. That's that's an incredible way to uh, address this issue. You know, and unfortunately, a lot of the research on this question is is just not great. And mm. you can sort of imagine all the ways in which this is quite a tough uh, issue to quantify, mm-hmm. right? How do we even define a word like regret in the context mm-hmm. of parenthood? Um, you know, does it mean I wish this wasn't my life and I don't love my kids? Or does it mean, you know, I would have done some aspects of this differently? Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, it is very difficult to not have any kind of good, (laughs) any great data Mm -hmm. on how people actually feel about these issues. You know, there's a famous and I I think somewhat now kind of debunked story about Ann Landers um, who wrote in one of her advice columns, you know, about this issue of regretting parenthood and essentially asked her readers you know, to, to write in and, you know, let me know, sort of conducted an informal poll. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that informal poll, you suggested that a huge number of women regretted becoming mothers. Um, you know, there are now some questions as, as to how scientifically mm-hmm. sound that was. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is not, a, it's certainly not a new issue. Um, I think what is new is that women you know, like Mona are opening up more space uh, to for for other women and men, um, 
and people across the whole gender spectrum Mm -hmm. to decide not to have children at all and to own that decision. Um, But what I think we're still not seeing quite enough of is diving into the gray areas, Mm -hmm. to the ambiguity, to the complicated emotions, you know, to that huge space between I'm 100% sure and confident I don't want children and I feel amazing about that decision, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm sort of the perfect mother and I love my children and I would die for them. I think most women's experiences, most people's experiences fall somewhere in that huge middle gap that remains, you know, I think overwhelmingly unexplored. It's not so binary, right? Well, this conversation is certainly jamming our phone lines because so many people are calling in wanting to share their experiences. So let's go to Erica in Oakland. Thank you for calling into Forum, Erica. Hi, I wanted to talk about Mona's um, comment that people express that they feel it's selfish not to have children. My feeling has always been exactly the opposite. I felt it was selfish of me to want to have children, especially in light of how much biomass, human biomass we already have on the planet that is, you know, essentially over, you know, destroying it. And uh, so I, for that reason, and also because I simply couldn't afford it when I was of childbearing age, um, I, I didn't have kids mm-hmm. before I hit 42, which is really the end of natural fertility. Mm-hmm. Now that I can afford it, I find that I regret that I didn't. Um, not, not that I, and I'm now looking to the IVF. And what I find interesting is the only people who are willing to talk to me about the fact that they think that could be a big mistake mm-hmm. are older feminist friends in their 70s who say that they regret having kids, um, that life would have been a lot more fun without them. Um, for a whole bunch of reasons. And, um, and they, they're the only ones who sort of discourage me from doing it. Um, oh, and also one other friend who says, why would you do this? You have everything. <laughs> so I don't, I don't feel incomplete if I don't, but I am looking for a donor and so forth. Thank you. Um, Thanks for sharing that, Erica. I want to ask you, Professor Hartnett, because Erica talks about this concern about overpopulation, biomass increasing in the world. Is that a reason you're hearing about the declining birth rate? More and more people concerned, for example, about things like climate anxiety and overpopulation? Um, Yeah, so this is something that has gotten a lot of attention in the media, um, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence for it, Mm -hmm. at least not currently. Um, That could always change in the future. Um, it, it sounded like we needed to take a break. Should oh, I stop? We can come back to this. You're listening to Forum. We're talking about why some people choose to not have kids, why some who do may regret aspects of parenthood, and why. We'll be right back into the conversation after a short break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum, where before the break, we heard from Erica in Oakland about her concerns of an overpopulated planet. So, Professor Hartnett, what can you say to us about the evidence we have, whether this really should be a concern for people like Erica? Yeah, so this is something that people want to talk about a lot. Um, it gets a lot of attention, um, but I have not seen a lot of evidence for that. Um, so there are a couple of studies that investigate reasons that people cite for not having kids. And climate change is something that people mention sometimes, but much less often than other reasons, right? So it's it's usually more concrete things like they can't afford childcare, they can't afford a house, they haven't found a partner, or you know they're just not interested. Um, and in these studies, people can cite multiple reasons. So it might be that climate change is just sort of one of many reasons, but not a deciding factor. Um, I've started doing some research um, with some colleagues where we're not asking people directly why they're not planning to have kids, but we're looking at whether childbearing intentions differ systematically between people who are concerned with the environment and people mm -hmm. who are not. Um, and based on one study of 12th graders, we find that environmental concern was really not associated with childbearing plans in mm -hmm. the way that we would have predicted. Um, and in another study that looks at adults of all ages, um, we find that people with greater environmental concern report a smaller, like ideal family size, like a kind of vague idea of ideal family size mm -hmm. compared with people with less environmental concern. But ideal family size has gone up over time for both groups. Hmm. So even people who are worried about the environment are increasingly likely to say that the ideal U.S. family has at least three kids. So, you know, I think that climate change concerns could play a decisive role for a small group of people. Um, I think that maybe for a larger group of people, it might be one of many reasons that they kind of throw in the bucket. Um, but, you know, without being a decisive factor for that larger group of people. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's something that's gotten so much hype in the media, and yeah. people always want to talk about it. But, you know, my intuition that is that it's probably not warranted. Well, Mona, you're writing a book on this very topic. So I'm curious what reasons you hear cited most often as to why people are choosing to live a child-free life. And does overpopulation or climate anxiety come up at all? I rarely mention uh, climate concern or overpopulation. And I'm focusing, I also have to say that um, most of the people I'm speaking to are uh, not white cisgender women, because I mm -hmm. find that most of the books uh, and essays that I've read about uh, child-free by choice or being child-free by choice are usually written by or for or uh, center uh, white cisgender women. So I'm speaking to women uh, of South Asian descent. I'm speaking to women of Arab descent. I'm speaking to women, uh, for, for example, from China, where, you know, I mentioned in my essay that a group of feminists were kicked off a very popular social media site because they were repeating a motto mm -hmm. by what is described as a militant South Korean, uh, South Korean feminist collective who have vowed not to have heterosexual sex, who are vowed not to have children, and doing it because they want to stand up to patriarchy, misogyny, um, um, homophobia, you know, all kinds of pressures that are brought to bear on people who have uteruses or people who are expected to have children. And uh, very few of those people bring in um, climate concerns, to be honest. Hmm. 
Okay, I want to share a comment from a listener who writes in. When I was 26, I tried to have my tubes tied. No doctor would do it. I terminated two pregnancies in my 20s and 30s. When I was 38, engaged, employed and stable, I became pregnant and we decided to become parents. I now have two sons whom I love very much, but we are older parents, which is exhausting. I would have been perfectly happy without children. My children are a source of joy and pain and growth, but not without costs to my physical and mental health. I look forward to being an empty nester all the time. Jill, this reminds me so much about what you shared in the last 40 minutes and also what you write about in your essay that it's not clear cut and super binary and yet it's really difficult and taboo often for people to even share some of those nuances about what they do and don't regret. Right, exactly. I think we want to put the concept of parental regret into a very narrow frame. You know, I wish this wasn't my life. And I don't think that's typically how women actually do process this regret. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in my essay, I I pull from a piece by Cheryl Strayed in The Rumpus where she brings up this idea of uh, the, the ghost life that all of us, especially when it comes to these big, Uh, decisions, you know, of which childbearing, as Mona says, is kind of the only one that is undoable. Um, You know, many of us, we do have these kind of parallel imagined other lives. You know, there's, there's the me who had children, or there's the me who didn't. There's the me who, you know, married someone else, lived in a different country, took a different path. Um, And that, you know, to me is sort of the most resonant way of thinking about this question of regret. You know, not just do do I love or not love my life, but, you know, when I I imagine the parallel life uh, that encompasses all the choices, you know, I didn't make, the path that when I came to a crossroad, I didn't walk. Mm -hmm. If I look over at, at that ghost ship, does it feel better to be on the ship that I'm sailing on? Or do I wish that I was taking, you know, the other trip? Um, and I think there are a lot of, a lot of mothers, a lot of fathers as well, who do look at that, you know, the ghost ship of their lives and, and think, you know, maybe this would have been better if I had boarded that other boat. Right. Um, and that I think is, you know, it doesn't speak to not loving your children. It doesn't suggest that those parents are any less dedicated um, to the kids that they did have. But I do think it, it, it complicates our very simplistic narratives yep. around parenthood and, and motherhood particularly. Absolutely. And on this topic of parental regret, we did have a listener call in and leave us a voicemail. So let's take a listen to her perspective on parental regret. My parents always put, especially my mom, put pressure on me to have kids and for the past uh, almost five years now, I have no life. Everything um, is around my child. I, I've had a lot of people tell me, um, well, you wanted to have kids, so you should be happy about it, that you have a son. And no, I'm not happy about having a son because it's really not how I thought it would be. Uh, my son, I, I do love him. It has nothing to do with love, but it's just, you know, I wouldn't have him and I would be kind of happy in a way of not having him because it's it's hard people need to say uh, how tough it is to be a mom um 
because it, it's because everyone says that oh it's love at first sight it's so fun when they smile and this and that and then when what like me i didn't have love at first sight when i saw my son at all so when you're not in the norm you kind of feel a bad mom like a bad mom and you know it's that it's not love at first sight it's normal that you want to cry because Sometimes it's just way too much. It's just normal that you want, that you need help. All of this is normal. Thank you so much to that listener for calling in and leaving us that voicemail. Jill, I'm curious to get your response and also your thoughts on how we normalize and make okay these kinds of challenging conversations. Yeah, I mean, that's a heartbreaking voicemail to listen to. And what it really brings up for me is the fact that these conversations are inherently political, Mm -hmm. right? I don't want to talk about parental regret, you know, just because, although I do certainly find it interesting. Um, I think it's important to talk about because when you hear women and men, but mostly women, I think, articulate what it is about parenthood that they regret, Most of it centers around these external conditions of parenthood Mm -hmm. uh, that we create, whether that's legally or culturally, right? So a lot of it centers around uh, these tremendous outsized expectations of constant and total maternal devotion that doesn't leave women a lot of room uh, for their own individual identities, interests, and lives. A lot of it centers around the fact that here in the U.S., we give mothers virtually no support. Hmm. We expect mothers to be full-time workers and also full-time parents while we ratchet up expectations for workers and parents at the same time. Um, So a lot of what I hear when I hear women talking about what they regret, you know, why they maybe wouldn't have had kids or would have had them later or would have had them under different circumstances. When I hear those conversations, I don't just hear an unexplored bit of women's lives, although that's important. Mm -hmm. What I also hear is a call for change, you know, and and a a look at, well, how could could these conditions be shifted so that this woman, so that many women um, can experience parenthood as something that is voluntarily and non-coercively entered into if they want it. And for the women who enter into it can find that relationship to be you know, of course, always complicated and emotionally fraught and at times difficult, but not so centered on sacrifice and perhaps instead, you know, centered on joy and community and connection. You know, we we could build that Mm -hmm. while also building the world, you know, that feminists like Mona are pushing for, right? Which is where a world in which childbearing is voluntary, in which a variety of family setups are common and normal. And the sort of nuclear family, uh, full-time, totally devoted, totally sacrificial Mm. mother is not the feminine norm or expectation. Yeah. And let's take a call now from Mark, who's calling in from Dublin. Thanks for your call, Mark. Hi. Well, um, I am, I'm 60 years old, um, single, as is my brother. Uh, we both uh, grew up in a very loving Jewish family. Uh, my mother was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, my father was a child of the Depression. Um, you know, life was difficult for, for both of them. Mm-hmm. And we had, uh, um, you know, again, wonderful, uh, full, loving lives. Uh, neither of us have any children. And I thought about why this is the case. And for for us, I think, growing up, was more of a job 
you know, there were certain expectations that uh, our parents had for us, and we were always expected to kind of fall in line with those expectations. Professional ones, I think, perhaps being the most important. But mm-hmm. you know, we were going to go to high school, college, medical school, um, and uh, I'm sure my parents wanted children, but unfortunately, neither of us were were able to provide for them. Thank you so much for your call, Mark. You're listening to Forum. I'm Seema Yasmin, in for Mina Kim. I'd like to take a call now from Danielle, who's a single parent. Danielle, thanks for calling into Forum. Hi, my name is Daniela. Oh, um, I'm sorry, Daniela. No, thank you so much for facilitating this dynamic conversation. It's, you know, it's never really talked about these things that, um, as a, I have a women's studies degree, I'm a feminist, and I'm unmarried, but I do have a son, and he's, um, he's autism. So um, I wanted to say that actually there is a place where people do vent about regretting their parenthood. And it's unfortunately, it's the autism sites that I find hmm. that a lot of people talk. It seems like there's a space for that talk. Mm-hmm. And um, it's also a little selfish sometimes because it's really there. It's my son's disability. It's not my disability. And mm-hmm. it's also, I think it's his, I don't want to expose that. I don't ever, I never speak on this like for that sort of reason. But yeah. it, it seems like that's allowed for some, for some reason or another. But um, I also want to say with Mona, it's very true that something about having trauma mm. has to do with being able to make that decision. Because when I was a child, I saw a lot of domestic violence. My dad would say to my mom that she could never leave him. She oh, had no money. And gosh. I knew right away I would never be in that situation. Okay. I, would, I didn't want marriage. I didn't want children. And I had made that decision. And um, I ended up getting pregnant by my, my son's father passed away you know, since when he was baby. But he stepped on my birth control pills. Oh my and gosh, he, I'm so sorry. He did it so I get practicing. Yeah, I know it's okay. Um, I love my son very much. And um, it's really, you know, it's an interesting journey with my son, but it's yeah. nothing I would have chosen. And he's a, the greatest boy I could have ever you know, dreamed of having. He's awesome, smart, nice, kind. Um, you know, he's, he's a great kid. Yeah. But I think it's great um, to be able to express not wanting children, and we're not allowed to as women, mm-hmm. even moder- in modern times, even when you're educated, you're not really allowed to say, I don't like diapers. I don't like babies. They're, I don't like babies. I mean, I, they're, I love babies. I love my son, but I don't want to change people's diapers. I don't want to, I don't have to hold people's babies. I'm like, yeah. you know, I don't want to. <laughs> so that's always seen as, you know, not just taboo, but makes you kind of seem evil. And then right. if People tell me things like, you should find a father for him. You should get married. I don't want that. Mm. I don't want to have to take... Because men oftentimes... I'm, I'm apologizing to men who this isn't true for, but I've seen and experienced men that become a... That it's like another child. Mm-hmm. You're picking up after him them constantly, and they're actually not disciplinary style. They're the ones that have just the fun, so it's just... It's hard. I'm dealing with a man as well. I feel... I'm against... No, I'm against it. I'm for myself. Mm-hmm. So, being, you know, being a single spinster by choice. Daniela, thank you so much for calling in. Jill, you talk about this in your essay. There is a legitimate concern that people feel like they can't discuss regret or any aspect of it without wounding their child or children. Is there a way to have this conversation without doing that? I think there is. Um, You know, I think one way in the immediate term is to have the conversation anonymously, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are many online forums where you don't have to post your name. Um, There is the ability to write essays and engage in these conversations, you know, across cities and borders and cultures um, and keep yourself anonymous so that, you know, your child doesn't have to read uh, your more complicated feelings that perhaps, you know, would be quite difficult, I think, for a kid to Mm -hmm. hear. Um, I also think there's, there is a way to talk about this topic 
that you know even if a, you know a, a child did get a hold of something that was written or heard what was said um or it was discussed directly with them you know mm-hmm. could comprehend which is not you know that i regret you um but that you know i may have made different decisions had the circumstances been different i mean mm-hmm. i've had this conversation with my own mother who adores my sister and i very much is a woman who hinges much of her identity on being a mother um, you know, really <laughs> wants me to have kids quite badly because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it is the best, de- she would say it was the best decision she ever made in her life. You know, it's also a decision she only made because her doctor told her she was mm. pushing 30 and needed to pull the trigger. Wow. Um, you know, so if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't exist, right? I know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I also know that I was very wanted and, and very loved. Um, so I do think that, you know, even children, mm-hmm. um, and certainly adult children, uh, can handle these conversations yeah. if they're dealt with, you know, with that kind of nuance and care and love. Right. And I started this show by talking about my own mother's experience of becoming pregnant as a teenager when she didn't want to. Mona, let me ask you this, because my mum made liberating choices that mean that I can choose to not have children. Do you think it's fair, okay, too optimistic for me to feel hopeful about a future where that really is the experience of many girls and women? No, I, I'm a tenacious optimist that I really, really <laughs> want us to create that future. And I think this is why this conversation is so essential, where we're talking about being child-free by choice, where we're talking like Jill's talking about regret and making space for it and, and saying, it's not that I regret you, it's that, you know, I want I wanted a choice. And I think that is how we bring about change, mm-hmm. by making space for us all, for, by seeing us all, by saying that we deserve to be free mm-hmm. in the way that we want to be free. And I hope that my being so, you know, for lack of a better term, I embrace being strident. Mm-hmm. By being strident, I help others to be strident. Thank you so much for that, for all of the calls and comments we've got. We've been talking about the choice not to have kids with Mona Altahawi, the author of The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, and also the author of Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution. Mona's also founder and editor-in-chief of the newsletter Feminist Giant. We were also joined by Jill Filipovich, a journalist, lawyer, and author of The Hate Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. And thanks also to Professor Caroline Sten Hartnett, Associate Professor at the University of South Carolina. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Seema Yasmin. In for Mina Kim, who will be back with you on Monday. Thank you so much. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.